Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Daniel Letterman. Daniel, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Alex, for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I always enjoy listening to your interviews, so I'm really excited to chat with you today. I am a Senior Performance Analytics Lead at Roku. I work with Roku's performance and growth clients to measure the impact of TV streaming marketing campaigns on sales and on other campaign objectives. And I do this through a variety of tactics, such as running advertising experiments to see what's impactful in driving uh, customer behavior and through multi-touch attribution. I have a pretty holistic background that spans the advertising and media ecosystem. So while at Roku, I've been focusing on TV advertising. I've spent time in past jobs working on digital advertising, on e-commerce, and in various offline marketing channels. I also have experience working for media companies uh, such as Roku. Uh, but also for brands directly. So my immediate past job was with PepsiCo on their e-commerce team. So I have this holistic background, both in terms of marketing channels that I touch and also in the types of companies that I've worked for. That's really interesting. Roku's been doing really well. Who would you say is your real competitor? Are you competing against other kinds of boxes or are you competing against like gaming consoles? How do you view the competitive set for Roku? That's a great question. Roku has two major business components. The one that people naturally think of is the consumer facing business. Roku produces devices and the operating system that make it possible for people to stream television. And Roku also produces its own content and also and acquires content for the Roku channel. So Roku's competitors are other manufacturers of streaming TV equipment and other content producers. Now the second business component is actually where I sit in the organization and it's B2B, business to business, rather than B2C, business to consumer. We sell advertising inventory to clients, which enable them to reach their consumers while they are watching ad-supported TV streaming channels. And our B2B competitors are other advertising platforms. It's interesting. So um, talking more about your area of expertise and um, kind of what you bring to the table, what what is your kind of favorite area of value to, to add? My passion is around running experiments, running, running marketing experiments. And it's uh, something they do quite a bit at Roku and have done in various other roles at previous companies as well. I love thinking about what are the goals of a marketing campaign and how to best structure an experiment uh, given resource constraints or platform constraints, but how to best structure an experiment to help answer um, business questions and and drive business decisions. 
for anybody that may not really have a good background in testing, what are the kind of questions you may ask to then go and solve and improve the business? Sure. I think here it might be useful to start thinking about the differences in running experiments in a product capacity and a marketing capacity. I think when most people think about experimentation in a business context, you first think about um, about 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 product experimentation, uh, and and their use case is a bit different than in marketing. So in product roles, you uh, companies run classic A/B tests, and it could be something as simple as what color should this go button be? Should it be big and green? Should it be small and green or big and yellow? Uh, or, or the, or the, uh, or the, or the experiment could be more on a feature rather than a product. It could be about I have this recommendation algorithm and I want to use a different recommendation algorithm um, to recommend books or movies or whatever it is. Um, and does that help drive business goals? Uh, and in the products in the product world, people who are running experiments are partnering with uh, with product managers and have to think about the goals of the test and the short-term and long-term goals of the test and what might unintended consequences of the test be. Um, and in, in the marketing world, there's a lot of similarities, but there are some, uh, some differences. There are, I would say, there are two categories of testing and experimentation in marketing. The first would be testing two different ad creatives or possibly testing two different uh, targeting strategies. And I think this is pretty similar. Uh, this, is, this is probably pretty similar to, uh, to what product um, exper- what's done on the product side um, with, with experimentation. Um, here, you might have two different ad creatives, and you just want to know which one is more likely to drive uh, consumer purchases or website visits or whatever the um, the KPI is for that campaign. And here, experimentation is used to choose between two options. But I think where it gets tricky is the second aspect of experimentation and marketing, and that's what's generally referred to as incrementality, which where your control group is not serving an ad at all. Um, the question that the marketer is asking is, is not which creative is better. It is, does my ad campaign have, what is the impact that this ad campaign has? Is it causing people to uh, to perform an action, to buy a product, for for instance, and I would, and almost all of the marketing experiments I've run has been in this category in measuring uh, incrementality, and it's a lot trickier and much more complicated. It's it's very difficult to figure out. What would happen if I didn't run an ad campaign at all? 
and then from there tease out the actions that I'm seeing now, the behavior I'm seeing now, how much of it can be attributed to, uh, to the marketing efforts. So what would you say are some of the weaknesses of incremental measurement? I think a lot of the discussion around the weaknesses in incremental is related to, um, is related to costs. Um, some of the pushback that I've seen um, in the past has been has been hesitancy to withhold serving an ad to someone that the ad could influence. Mm. So the core aspect of experimentation is you run an ad campaign, but then you are also creating a control group that in theory should look exactly like the treatment group, look like the uh, group of households or individuals that are seeing the, the ad with the one key difference. The key difference is they don't see an ad. And so I would say one weakness is you're leaving that audience sort of on the table, you can serve um, an ad to these individuals and you're choosing not to. But I would say that if you want an answer, if, if your marketing campaign is working, it's the best approach of getting that uh, answer. So it's more of a trade-off consideration than a pure weakness. Mm -hmm. And how would you explain to somebody like an executive, for example, that may not understand all of the nuances, um, that it is actually really important to have a holdout group of a audience that would potentially be benefited from the ad. How how would you explain that um, to somebody who doesn't really understand the the details behind it? So advertising has come a long way since, let's say, the early days of broadcast television. Um, in the past, in the past, the only way to to reach consumers is to say run a television commercial, and lots and lots of uh, of of people see it, and it's not super targeted, and you don't uh, and uh, marketers didn't know who was uh, was seeing the ad. There's the old uh, adage um, attributed to John Wanamaker that half of my advertising budget is wasted and I don't know which half. That's funny. So advertising is a lot more uh, sophisticated now. And there is a lot, there is uh, targeting that is set up to reach likely, likely customers. But now the question becomes very different. You, if you're looking at an ad campaign absent of, uh, of experimentation, you might see that you spent a lot of money on this ad campaign and sales went up. Or, you might, or to phrase it more, uh, more accurately, you might see you spent a lot of money on this ad campaign and a lot of the people that you reached ended up buying your product. Mm -hmm. But the question is really around 
causality and correlation. Did those did did the ad cause those people to buy the product, or is your targeting so good and so strong that you are reaching people? Uh, you are serving an ad to people who would have bought the product anyway. And that is the key question that, that an experiment is looking to answer. Only by uh, having a control group that is identical to the treatment group in every way, except for their ad exposure, can you assess how many people would have bought the product anyway and how many are incremental um, or can be truly attributed back to the campaign. And I think through running experiments, it's easier to compare different platforms, compare different partners, um, compare different media types uh, in a much more sophisticated way because there's so many differences between your between uh, a client's partners that an, an experimentation uh, is 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 a, is a clean way of of really assessing the impact uh, each has on your performance objectives mm-hmm I think that was really well put. What are the different types of experimentation in a product versus marketing role? So what kind of experimentation would you do in a product role? What kind of experimentation would you do in more of a marketing role? Sure. Thank you. Thanks for asking about um, types of experiments, because this is where I love to geek out. Awesome. So in a product role you're typically looking at uh, the classic A-B test where you have, where you are randomly assigning individuals to segment A or segment B. And segment A sees one set of product features and segment B sees another set of product features. But to put more accurately, they sh- only one feature should be uh, should be different. You shouldn't test two or three things um, at a time because then it gets much trickier to know uh, which change is causing the, the change in, uh, in behavior. There's a lot more variance in marketing tests on how to structure an, an experiment. So let's think for a second. I I mentioned before that there are two main aspects of marketing experiments. There's one that is similar to a product test where you're testing two different creatives, and that's very similar. You might do an A-B test for that. And then there's incrementality where you want to know, did the ad cause uh, a meaningful shift in behavior? I'm going to f- drill down on that incrementality question and talk through a few different methodologies that a brand might consider. So classically, I would say this one is not very uh, m- isn't used uh, too much, and for reasons I'll get into. But classically, what's considered sort of the the gold standard in in experimentation is 
is a PSA test where you're randomly assigning each household or each individual into a test or a control group. And randomization is important to ensure that the two uh, audiences are identical to one another. And one group is seeing an ad and the other group is seeing a PSA, a public service announcement, which is the placebo. And this is similar to what's done in medicine. Think about the uh, COVID-19 vaccine trials. There's, uh, there's a test group and a control group and the control group gets a placebo, uh, placebo vaccine. And it's considered the gold standard um, for, for good reason. And, uh, and it's considered to be the most uh, a scientifically sound way of assessing the impact of the treatment, which is why it's so um, prevalent in, in medicine and in science. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, when you adapt that methodology to marketing, the, the key the key aspect of it, um, the, the, the major con of this is that it's expensive. The first question is who pays to serve a public service announcement ad? The marketer doesn't want to pay for inventory where they're not reaching their customers. The media company doesn't want to pay for that inventory either because they could sell it to another client. So that becomes the major component that, uh, that drives people not to run, uh, run PSA tests. Mm -hmm. And when you say PSA, are you, what, what form, what would that look like? Well, first you need to have an ecosystem. You need to have um, a platform that allows for randomization. So at the point where you're, um, where the platform is about to serve an ad, it's a, it needs to take this individual or take this household and randomly assign it to a treatment or test cell or test group or a control or holdout group. Um, and then after that point, it then serves either the client's ad to the test group or it serves a public service announcement to the control to the control group. Okay, so you're talking literally like a random public service announcement like like a blank message or or what would it say for the control? It could be anything. Public service announcements are commonly used, but uh, you might use a public service announcement from the ad council for 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 example. It could be what what the only thing that's important is that the message is unrelated to the client's message. It's if you're selling if you're selling a a car ad, uh, buy a car. Um, you don't want to sell a competitor's ad in that spot. You want to just you want to. You could sell something. The ad could be 
uh, get your COVID vaccine. Um, it could be anything, anything. that doesn't so, interfere with the test. Yes. So it doesn't have to be a PSA, but something needs to fill that space. So PSAs are commonly used to fill that space. I want to ask more about experimentation. So an alternative to PSA uh, tests that is becoming more commonplace and, and has growing adoption is it's called, uh, it's called ghost ads. And this was something that was developed by, uh, by some PhDs, I think from Northwestern University in conjunction with Google um, a few years back and uh, started with, company, with, with, with Google, but, uh, but has been really um, adopted by a lot more media companies um, since then. And the distinction between a PSA test and a ghost ad test is very much uh, like a PSA test. There's randomization. You have a uh, some households or some individuals that are assigned to the treatment group, and they see the ad. And some individuals or households that are assigned to the control group, but there is no ad served to the control group. Instead, a machine learning algorithm predicts whether the person in the control group will end up seeing an ad. Uh, there's, there's, in the media, for the, uh, to take a step back, the digital advertising, uh, for example, is, occurs in an online auction. So when you visit a website and you open a page, Let's say, Alex, you visit a website and, and open a page and different brands and media companies uh, bid for the opportunity to serve you an ad. So if you are, if, if a company, if, if you're in the market for shoes and Adidas wants to show you an ad, they might... They, they might participate in this online auction and bid to so, show you an ad, but it doesn't mean they will get the opportunity to serve you an ad. Another company might, might win the auction, um, which is why either running um, a placebo test with a public service announcement or, um, or using a ghost ad and predicting whether um, Adidas will win the auction becomes... Uh, becomes important. And the primary benefit of ghost ads is it reduces the, the major barrier of PSA tests, which is the cost. Now, you don't need to pay for, uh, to, to, to place a public service announcement anymore. Um, you're using machine learning and nobody is buying that ad, or at least your company is not buying that ad. So you're using a competitor's bid and, and them winning an auction in place of a PSA for your target audience and contrasting performance against the audience that saw the ad, the other ad. 
Yeah, you're withholding your bid altogether. You're not bidding on that ad. Okay. Um, but you're, but you're but you're building. You're using a model to predict would I have won this bid if I had um, participated in the auction. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that you treat as the control. That's the control group. And there's actually a really this gets a little geeky, uh, but there's a really interesting argument on besides for the cost component. Why, in theory, a PS, uh, why ghost ads might even be better than a PSA test? Mm-hmm. And we could take a moment to tease this out. Sure. So what I mentioned before, what is the most important thing in running an experiment? The most important part of an experiment is everything is the same like you mm. want to you want to create an environment that where the where the only thing that's different is the ad being served like you want you you want your holdout group or your control group to look as if there was no campaign being run so you can uh assess what would happen if I wasn't spending any money on media and get those baseline um, actions, baseline conversion volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, tease out the incremental, um, in- incremental actions. Now, what would happen if you're Adidas and you were not running an ad campaign? Well, it wouldn't be a PSA. I think I know what you're getting. It would be mm-hmm. another competitor who would advertise in your place. So if you're measuring your performance against a PSA, it's not representative of what's actually happening. It's not apples to apples. Exactly. If Adidas didn't serve the ad, the second highest bid, or what would have been the second highest bid, becomes the highest bid. And it's possible that Nike had the second highest bid and by running a PSA test you are actually you're actually denying Nike the opportunity to win the auction and but in real life Nike might win that auction and you Alex instead of seeing an Adidas ad and instead of seeing a get your COVID-19 vaccine ad you might see a Nike ad and that may or may not shift your behavior and whether you end up buying those Adidas shoes. Right. And obviously the cost or the risk is anytime you're using machine learning, the performance will be as good as your model. So models introduce, uh, do do introduce biases, but um, the better the model is, the more bias is reduced. Where can people go to learn more about ghost ads, the the things you were talking about today? Do you have any influencers or pieces of content or blogs that you follow? Yeah, I mean, if you search for any of these terms we mentioned, incrementality in, in marketing, ghost ads, uh, you'll come up with a lot of articles that go more in depth. But I would say if you really, if you want to sort of follow uh, best practices in the industry, a lot of companies um, have blogs, like the data science and analytics uh, components of those companies, like 
Google has one, Facebook, uh, Netflix, Uber, DoorDash, a whole bunch, um, both brands and, uh, and, and media companies uh, have, have blogs that often deal with, um, with incrementality or address various other uh, topics as well. But, uh, but these are, th I think these are components, these are topics that, uh, that do come up a lot um, on, those, on those industry blogs. This is fascinating. Um, and what channels allow for such live kind of dynamic control group holdouts? There will typically be um, on um, like digital advertising platforms, uh, like online advertising, banners and videos um, when you're surfing the web. And to that, I'd also include uh, streaming TV advertising which uh ha which obviously is some which has a lot of um similarities companies like Roku is basically taking that taking television advertising and um and taking the capabilities that ex that have been built up in uh on in digital advertising and applying it to a television world mm -hmm. that's it's obviously not possible uh, for other media types like linear television uh, mm -hmm. or or magazines, it's 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 might not be possible to to run um, to run a test with true randomization. And there are some options when randomization is not a platform feature. One methodology might be what's called uh, matched market tests, where you're looking for two sets of markets. And these could be cities or, or states or zip codes or any anything like that. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for two sets that are as similar to each other as possible. Mm -hmm. And so you might look at uh, pre-sales. You might look at... Um, at how many people have bought the product in the last month, four weeks or 12 months, whatever it is, uh, to come up with two sets of markets that, uh, that are similar to each other. And then you could serve an ad in one set of mar one market, one set of markets and not serve an ad in the other set of markets and see over time if there's a change in uh in 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 sales or customer behavior in those markets that makes a lot of sense and what are some of the behaviors that would that you would consider to be similar across markets would it be purchasing behavior purchase size would it be anything that you can kind of think of that might r link people from a behavioral standpoint or is it more specific things yeah, I mean, I think there's two major categories there. There's the purchase behavior. So what is their purchase behavior before running the marketing campaign? Uh, sort of the sales volume. Uh, or there, or you could do more, or you could do linking by uh, by demographic behavior. Uh, how similar are 
the audiences, the, the people that, uh, that live there. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, you're like any way a, co- a company would segment an audience would be a way where you could compare and um, test, you know, similar audiences and uh, different treatments of those audiences. Treatment being, you know, different advertising campaigns, not uh, <laughs> not actual treatment. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I'm I'm really enjoying this uh, conversation. Um, yeah, me I just, too. Yeah, I I think there's a lot people can learn. Uh, we said uh, uh, you said a term earlier, linear TV, and I just want to clarify that's just cable. Right, just like the standard '90s, what you know, you turn on your TV. That was linear TV. Yeah, cable broadcast. When you're watching, uh, well, yeah, when you're watching live TV, not through a streaming channel or streaming platform. Right, like Hulu Live TV. Is that linear? That would be. That would typically be thought of as um, as streaming TV. So this would be ABC, CBS, or any cable channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then having a like the literal cable um, might be linear TV, unless it's it kind of gets complicated. Um, would Would you say that the the TV space has quite a quite a bit of terminology to get through? I think all business environments have a quite a bit of terminology. I mean, the business world, the marketing world love acronyms and we're not even dealing with acronyms over here. Yeah, that's true. I think for our listeners, whatever industry you're in, I bet you can relate. Yeah, that's true. Um, here's an acronym that people use a lot, MTA and MMM. Um, yeah, fun so- stuff. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure you you work with them, um, or at least you work with the insights related, because that's, you know, whenever a business is looking at where do we spend our money, um, a lot of the time they're looking at modeling. So do you have any experience with modeling, uh, marketing, spend, and performance? Yeah, so I think we should start with, you threw out some acronyms. It's a bit of an alphabet alphabet soup. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we should at least uh, briefly define those terms. So, yeah. and I can also talk a little bit about how those, um, how those are different from uh, running incrementality tests and sort of uh, how the use cases uh, might, might differ there. So MTA is uh, multi-touch attribution and MMM is, uh, media mix modeling, and all and all of these three things, uh, MTA, MMM, and incrementality measurement are all quite uh, different from one another. So, when you're looking at MTA, you're looking at a consumer purchased a, a customer journey. Somebody saw an ad on NBC. Then, so a streaming TV ad on Hulu, then uh, saw an ad while surfing the web, et cetera. They, uh, et, et cetera. They, they, they saw they had, there were different touch points. And ultimately, 
they bought a product. Now, the question about the question you're asking with multi-touch attribution is which ad is responsible for driving the person to perform an action? And the, the complicated answer is maybe all of them to some extent. So then the question is, uh, how much credit do you give um, each touch point? Do you assign each touch point for, um, for the ultimate behavior? And in that sense, multi-touch attribution is a very much of a bottoms up or, or micro approach to, uh, to assessing uh, marketing effectiveness. You're looking at one customer, one purchase pathway, um, and assigning credit uh, for that one particular customer. Obviously, you're not just doing it for one, you're doing it across your whole, um, you might be doing it across your whole marketing um, budget, but it's basically a, a bottoms up approach. You're taking one cut pathway at a time. Um, media mix modeling is different because it's a top-down approach. It's much more of a macro approach. And here you're thinking about how much, um, how does the media mix affect total conversion volume? So I'm spending, you know, $100,000 on TV and $150,000 on digital advertising um, and et cetera. And you're asking, you ask, and then you're seeing how much sales you get in that time period, and you're trying to tease out uh, what what is the best media mix. How much should you be spending in total on television and on digital and on all your different uh, media platforms or, or media partners? So, multi-touch attributions is is more used for um, for optimization for taking taking a stock of campaign performance mid-campaign and maybe making changes to it. And media mix modeling is more used for planning purposes to determine your how to uh, allocate your budget next quarter. Now, both of them can be contrasted with incrementality uh, in much the same way, because neither multi-touch attribution or media mix modeling ask the question, did the ad cause the conversion uh, or are converters just more likely to see the ad. So it's really incrementality and experimentation that answers uh, that question. Um, while multi-touch attribution and media mix modeling, you're more looking across your entire uh, media budget and, uh, and comparing media types and comparing platforms. They all have their place, and they all—they all have—they all, have, all serve a function, and they're all important. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important, and more important than knowing all of the intricacies of how to build one of these models, it's important to know the benefits and to know what a business gets from it, because there are very you know, technical and talented people who are in charge of building these. It's, I mean, not just anybody can kind of read about it and, and build one, but what's really important is to understand why why it's critical to have these models in a marketing organization. And to go back to what we were talking about before, you know, marketing used to be a lot less scientific. It used to be kind of the spray and pray methodology. It used to be following the fundamentals and just getting your message out there. Um, but now we have so much more measurement. And these are the tools of measurement that, as an industry, we have built. Um, and now the 
the goal of any you know forward-thinking business is to bring these tools to their business to integrate them to build them um, and to improve marketing based on the insights that are gained from those tools um, would you agree absolutely and that's why i i mentioned that you might use multi-touch attribution for optimization and media mix modeling you might use uh, for 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 planning and then incrementality experimentation is used to assess one media partner more of in a vacuum as opposed to looking across your media plan so we talked about how everyone loves acronyms um, and we don't no one businesses don't just use these tools because they love acronyms they they all do serve a purpose. So uh, it, it's, it's, you don't need to be a data scientist to know what tool to reach for in your, in your toolbox to answer your business question that you're faced with. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to working for a media company versus a brand and how that, what, what is the difference for you? Yeah, I mean, I feel privileged to uh, to have worked in different sectors across the um, media and advertising ecosystem and to have worked for a media company like Roku and previously for a brand uh, like, like PepsiCo. And I find it interesting because in my different roles, some of my job requirements were read similar to one another, use experimentation, use attribution, assess the impact of marketing campaigns and improve um, marketing spend allocation, right? My, my job description reads similar, but the experience in working on these two platforms, uh, working in these two different companies are very different. And one way I like to think about it is when you're working for a media company, you could go very deep into the data. You have impression log level data. So you could see every single impression for a marketing campaign. An impression in this case is uh, is an ad was served and somebody uh, had an opportunity to see your ad. And this is true in digital advertising. This could be true in streaming TV advertising. Um, but the data is very, very detailed. And ultimately, what we can't share all of that with our clients. So what's sh- shared with the clients is, is aggregated uh, and... Uh, it might, it might be might be aggregated in, in different ways. Um, now, when you're when you're sitting on the brand side, what the data that you're seeing is that aggregated data that's being shared with you by your partners, by your media companies that that you're working with. Um, but you get a lot more breadth. So this is the distinction I want to draw, depth versus breadth. When you're working for a media company, you could go really deep in the data, but you're really focused on your own data. 
just your company's data and you could tease out the customer journey from your company's data. And when, when you're working for a brand, you might not have that depth, but you definitely have breadth because you're getting data from all your different partners. And uh, so, and you're getting, you might get, you might see e-commerce data and TV data and digital data and it's less detailed, um, but, but you have a broad overview. Uh, broad, uh, you have a broad overview across uh, different aspects of your advertising campaigns. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that um, in the case of, did you say Pepsi? Pepsi was, my, was where I worked previously okay. on their e-commerce team. So in the case of Pepsi, you would have insights from the various retailers that you go through and um, maybe other media companies that you advertise through, like Roku, right? Like maybe they have an ad spot with Roku and, and there's a you know kind of data that they can receive from that uh, advertising. And so um, you get all these different external perspectives of data Versus when you're working on a platform like Roku, where you are the hub for all of that data. And so you have it in a much more detailed way, but it's only from your perspective. Um, yes, you're missing, you're missing what every, the role every other media partner is playing in, in the brand's performance. But on the brand side, the challenge is a little bit different because you can't go as deep you are looking at pre-aggregated data, you really have to start thinking, looking for signals um, among the noise. Like every partner has a different methodology. Every partner might aggregate their data in a different way. So it becomes really challenging to compare these different data sets because they all have different business rules applied and they're all aggregated in different ways. Um, So kind of have to be really clever in figuring out how the media performance relates to one another across your different partners. I just thought of a interesting thought. I want to run it past you. Sure. So back in the day we had different currencies and this made it difficult to trade between groups because you would have to negotiate the exchange rate and they were just different formats And perhaps that is similar to the issue that you're describing here with data, wherein different companies have their data in different formats. It has value, but it must be somehow converted into a common, uh, almost like a currency, like a common kind of value that, that can be digested and understood relative to the other kinds of value that, that are being pulled from those other sources. So, the way of currency went towards simplification where we had gold, we had, you know, now we have a reserve currency. So it's like, you know, we've standardized the way that values transferred across borders, made it a lot easier. Is that the trajectory data is going in where when people house data, maybe in the future, it will be in a more standard format that can be compared across entities? Uh, or do you think that's not the case, that there's actually incentive to make data more proprietary? 
Um, which direction do you think we're going in? I think the former. I think there's a growing trend in giving brands and companies access to their own data, obviously in privacy compliant ways, which is which is super important. Yeah, it it makes sense that because the incentives are there, right? The incentive is there to create common data that can because data is so much more powerful when it is able to be combined with other sets of data and looked at from different perspectives. And none of this is possible when all when there's a ton of barriers and it, the data is in different formats and there's different assumptions made. It's it's a mess. And there's a lot of wrangling that we do as part of our jobs that I think I think will be reduced in the future. I think it will be easier to get data in the future as opposed to today. Media companies excel when their clients succeed. Like the client's success is the media's company's success. As a media company, we want our clients to be able to drive their performance objectives and uh, and and reach their their customers. So as different as these two types of roles might be when you're working in them, the the incentives and the priorities are very much aligned. Yeah. Yeah, and across the industry, um, that they're aligned. So I'm I'm excited about the future. Um, I and I think this is a this is actually a great place to to end. Well, thank you, Daniel, for coming on. I want to thank you uh, again, and this was a great conversation. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I'm really I'm really honored to uh, to have been invited and to chat with you. Absolutely. I'll have to have you on again. All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.